0: And you say, well, that kind of flies into the face of the sovereignty of God. This isn't God in control of everything, so how can I take ownership of something if God's actually in control of the entire outcome? But we know that there's some divine mixture of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. Welcome to another episode of the Carpe Fide podcast, where if the shoe fits, you wear it. And if the truth hurts, you bear it. I am Justin Gruber. And I am Jesse Gruber. And today we hope you will seize the faith. I want everyone first... Uh, to know how grateful I am for being here. This is, this is an honor uh, to come here and, and deliver the word to you guys. It's it's an honor anytime we get to deliver the word. And so, and then secondly, I want to thank Brad, right? Brad, yeah. name. All right, for that sausage. Because everyone, just give a clap. That, yeah, that was some. Yeah, that was that was not manish. All right, that was manly sausage. So. <laughs> yeah so um so who I, who am I? I am John cooper i'm the director of development of the Niagara Gospel mission uh what the Niagara gospel mission is it's a homeless shelter and rehab center for uh for homeless men and so our our mantra that we we have is we're rebuilding men through a relationship with Jesus Christ, and we get these guys everything's gone right like they're they're at the bottom of the barrel they're they're homeless they're they're coming in, puking, right? And then the first time they've had someone in a while has authority over them, says, get your butt in that seat for chapel. And, then, and that's how we start with them. And then through that, we see God transform their lives. Uh, it's really an amazing work that God's doing there. And so, uh, and so that's what we do. We have a recovery program. We encourage them to go through that recovery program. And uh, we don't just serve Niagara Falls. In our recovery program itself, we don't have anyone actually from Niagara Falls. It's from the rest of New York State, uh, that somehow, someway, they ended up They ended up. a good thing they didn't go over in a barrel, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so they are there. One person left. Thank you. So. <laughs> All right. So uh, we always say at the mission um, is that people aren't there because they ran out of resources. They're there because they ran out of relationships, right? Relationships in our lives are key. And so they're on the street because they've burned every bridge. Every bridge they've ever had, they burn that bridge with their friends and their families. And some of you may have had a relative who's gone through that. Some of you may have a relative who's an addict. I know I do. I have a cousin that's that way. He lives out uh, in Harrisburg. And um, please pray for that individual. You can give him a bus ticket to Niagara Falls, and we'll we'll push him through our program (laughs) and see what the Holy Spirit does, right? But that, that man needs a lot of prayer. That woman needs a lot of prayers going through that. Please don't look at them as just the disgusting addict uh, in your family, because that was my temptation. Um, bathe, that, bathe that person in prayer and see what God does. And so our main goal, like I said at the mission, is first uh, to get them to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And through that relationship, they can recon- reconcile five key relationships they need to survive with the life of Christ. And that's your relationship with yourself, your relationship with your family, the relationship with their community, Relationship with your work and the relationship with creation around you. And before I started working at the Narrow Gospel Mission, I served as a uh, Army sniper for six years. I was the sniper section leader uh, of a snipe, sniper section in Afghanistan. We were attached to Sejodif Alpha, uh, which is a Special Operations Joint Task Force Afghanistan. And I also, while during my time in service, I led an anti armor section, which was uh, four small teams, and you. You know, you were small teams, you had a Gustav, which is the, the modern version of a bazooka. And uh, we would just go around, you know, hunting tanks. You know, so that was kind of our, our gig. Uh, but I say all that because when I took a leadership position, I quickly learned that everything I did, or everything, not, excuse me, everything my section did was a reflection of me. Everything they did was a reflection of me, The Ranger Handbook, which uh, for those of you who don't know what that is, uh, who here has never heard of the term ranger before? Right? So everyone's kind of familiar with ranger. Yeah. And uh, not a park ranger, but a <laughs> ranger, ranger in the army. And so in their, in their handbook, they have this thing called the Ranger Handbook, which is this little tiny manual um, that can propel you through ranger school. And really, it's kind of the light infantry's uh, Bible, if you will. And under that, their, their, their leadership principle is be no do. And under do, it says this, quote, seek responsibility and take responsibility for your actions. Exercise initiative, demonstrate resourcefulness, and take advantage of opportunities on the battlefield that will lead you to victory. Accept fair criticism, take corrective actions for your mistake, end quote. And so that handbook says in the beginning, the first thing is leadership. And the first thing he says of a leader is he takes responsibility for his actions. He goes on to say exercise initiative, like we just said, resourcefulness, right? Accept fair criticism. How hard is it for us to accept criticism, right? It's never fun, especially when it comes from our wives. <laughs> take corrective action for those mistakes. That's so how you learn what to do from the corrective criticism and you take the appropriate action. Handbook breaks down leadership in the platoon roles. Platoon and light infantry is broken into four squads, and of those four squads, there are two teams. So that's the breakdown of an infantry squad. Under the platoon leader, it says, is responsible for what the platoon does or fails to do. Under the squad leader, is responsible for what the squad does or fails to do. And a section, like I said before, I led a, a sniper section in Afghanistan, and then I also led an anti-armor section um, That's a squad leader, right? That's that kind of position. And guess what it says under the team leader? Can anyone guess? Responsible what the team does or fails to do, right? As a leader, when in leadership, you become responsible for that thing. There's no blaming any other people anymore. You become responsible. And when I started working with homeless addicts at the gospel mission in Niagara Falls, the message is the same. A relationship with Jesus Christ means that you take relationship or excuse me responsibility for what brought you here. You admit your sin, confess it and repent, turn towards Christ. Christ wants you to take responsibility or ownership of where you are in life and trust him to move you on from there into conformity with his image. You can only do this because Christ himself took ownership, responsibility of your sin on that cross. We talked about that last night, right? Quick side note, that's why we don't at the mission apply for government, state, and federal grants because they want to dictate that we have to take that out of our ministry so that way we get like $6,000 a day from the state government which is a lot of money. We can do a lot of good, right? However, we got to take the gospel out which is the only thing that Christ took ownership of your sin that is actually going to help you. And you don't have to be a military leader or a recovering addict to know that when it comes to your life and any leadership you have, you must take ownership you must take responsibility and as christian men we are called to be leaders we're talking about valor this weekend we are called to lead that is what god has called us to do every one of you has a specific mission for your life every one of you in this room and i can tell you that because you're still breathing because when you don't have that mission god will take you home it may fluctuate as you get older but wherever you are in life, God has something specific that He called you to. Ephesians 2, 8-10 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Right? These were prepared beforehand. And it's not that good works save us, But it's because we're saved, we do these good works. Because we're saved, we do what God has called us to do. God has called me and every one of you to a specific mission. And they can't overlap, right? I'm not a lone ranger over here. There's some overlap in all of this. And we have the Great Commission that guides us. The Great Commission is kind of our commander's intent. It guides everything we do in this way. And so the basic overall mission, because all power and authority are from Christ, therefore we go into the world discipling people, and consequently nations, by teaching them to obey Christ. And each one of you has a mission. I want to drive that home. Every one of you has a mission. And we talked about valor meaning value yesterday, right? That's your value, is that mission God's called you to. Yes, you are valuable inside of God because you were created in His image. But God also has something of value to push you towards. We need to figure out what that is. And so today we're going to look at what's possibly... One of my favorite Bible characters, besides Jesus himself, and that's Nehemiah. Nehemiah. And when we talk about valor, and I'm pretty sure when Jesse and Justin invited him here, they thought, because of my background, I was going to pick two soldiers (laughs) to talk about. And I picked two politicians to talk about. I know, right? Why? Yeah. (laughs) So, two politicians, Nehemiah being one of them, and Daniel being the other one, which we're going to get to a little bit, but... God used these men to push His glory and to rebuild cities, to rebuild a people through their lives. And this, the title of this, as you can see, is Owning God's Mission for Your Life. So, who was Nehemiah? When Nehemiah came on the scene, the Jewish people were in captivity to the Persians. They had been taken by the Babylonians. This is the year 453 BCE, as it's said nowadays, which stands for Before Christ's Empire what that stands for. (laughs) There have already been two trips back to Judah. The city's in great calamity. And Nehemiah, his position is he's the cupbearer for the king. And what the cupbearer did is he ensured that there's no poison. So he would test the wine before it came to the king. And this means that Nehemiah is one of the most trusted men. You don't want someone testing your wine for poison who you don't trust, right? I know I wouldn't. That's why I made Justin everything that they were handing me last night. I made Justin sip a little bit before because I don't trust you guys. No, (laughs) just kidding. So that means, because guess what? When when all these politicians, all these people of power are coming, guess what's probably being poured? Some wine, right? Some drinks are being poured. The king from, you know, Egypt's over there. We're having him in. We're going to pour some wine. We're going to throw him a little bit of a party. We see that today. A foreign dignitary comes in. You throw him a party. Well, guess what? Nehemiah was privy to all of the conversations that were happening with some of the greatest leaders in the world. Nehemiah is there for all of us. He had access to all of us. He's a man of access. So to give you a brief overview of Nehemiah's life, he finds himself in the situation in Jerusalem. And and when he hears about this, he's moved. His brother actually tells him the situation in Jerusalem. So he's moved uh, to do something. And so he says in his heart, he prays and he says, "I, I believe I'm here to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. So this is a dangerous proposition because we learn in Esther and we also learn in Nehemiah 2.2 that to to commission the king, to ask the king for something and you weren't invited to ask him, that's a death sentence. If he so chooses, right, as we learn in Esther, he pulled out his or pushed out his golden scepter to receive Esther. Well, that was the same time period, same kingdom, right? Same, Same rules and customs apply. Nehemiah, though he's a friend, it seems, as we read this conversation between him and the king, He's still a slave. That's still his position. And so he comes in. The king grants to hear his request. And now he's off to Jerusalem. So he goes to Jerusalem. He does his reconnaissance of what's going on. And after surveying the situation, Nehemiah rallies the people to start building the wall. This is a massive wall. And it was actually estimated that it's eight feet thick. So this isn't, you know, just like a little fence, right? This is a massive undertaking, it, not only was it a massive undertaking, but they were under constant threat and duress from local powers. So they had to put up armed security from the same people working on the wall while they were going through this, from attacks. And he would have to deal with corruption from lower level leaders. He would, he would take over as a civil governor. I and mean, there's a lot that's going on here. And despite all the odds, Nehemiah built this wall in 52 days. 52 days. It takes 52 days, just to give you some thought process here when you hit a pothole and you write some paperwork saying we should fix this it takes 52 days for that paperwork to go from the guy who received this desk to the guy who's going to do something about it. just the paperwork moving to his desk right and after that it's going to take like another 120 days for them to actually fill the pothole and by that time they're just hoping that you've forgotten about it <laughs> right but in that time he builds an entire wall around jerusalem a massive undertaking. And Nehemiah doesn't stop. He establishes order and some governance in the land after that. So he's not just providing for the physical needs. Now he's going to establish some, some order. And he brings in Ezra and Levites to come forward and teach the law of God. He's saying, okay, we got, we got our comfort now. We got the wall. Now we're sitting under the word. Forced. Under the word. Everyone in the city is there listening to Nehemiah preach. They actually, Nehemiah 8.8 8, they actually build him like a like a pulpit, Nehemiah, in the middle of the city, so he can just go up there and preach. It would be awesome to see happen here, right? Justin, just up there, Johnny Bravo with the, the mohawk, you know, and just, just up there doing this. So then he makes all the leaders sign a covenant with, with, with the people to the Lord. They would follow the law of God, and then he would be that main communication, that main leader between the Persian government and... Jerusalem he would travel to and fro correcting the Jews when they would break the covenant so that Nehemiah's mind and this is what he says in Nehemiah 13 he believes that if they continue to break the covenant that God will put them back in exile and he worked so hard how, how many of us have worked so hard on a project and started to see it crumble right he did not want that happening so he literally in is it chapter 12 or chapter 13 he literally drags the dude out and beats the snot out of him one of his lower level leaders because he does not want to see Jerusalem go back to where it was before. And so we see at the mission, again, Nehemiah is, is the, really the blueprint for how we're going to run our mission. And we also see it as God's roadmap for how God revives his cities, right? If we want to see Glossboro, is that, is that how it's said around here? Glossboro, not Glassboro? Glassboro, Glassboro? okay, Glassboro. Yo, if we, <laughs> I'm going to get killed out of this. So, so, so if we want to see Glassboro... Come to the Lord, right? Nehemiah is a great study because that's what he's doing. He's taking a city that's in, it's in poverty, that's it, it's in depravity, and he brings it to conformity to our Lord. And we call it, and we call it Nehemiah to Niagara Falls. But today we're not going to talk about that, right? We just did the brief overview. We're not going to talk about the reviving God's cities. We're talking about Nehemiah himself and how God used his leadership. Nehemiah owns the mission. Nehemiah is faced with a mission from God. He knows that. He's faced with his mission from God. So he takes ownership of it. He perceives that God has called him to rebuild the wall, to secure, to revive the city. And when Nehemiah sees that God is chosen for this, what does he do? He takes ownership. He owns God's mission for his life. And so how does he do this? So if you want to turn to Nehemiah 1, if you're not there, Nehemiah chapter 1. And the first thing we see when we take ownership of the mission God has for us in our lives, the first thing we need to do is take it to the Lord in prayer. Anyone remember that, that old hymn? Take it to the Lord in prayer, right? We sang my second favorite hymn today, Victory in Jesus. I love that hymn. But Nehemiah chapter 1, first thing he does is he takes it to the Lord in prayer. Now it happened in the month of Shiv, in the twelfth year that I was in Susa, this is Nehemiah speaking in the capital. That Hanai, one of my brothers, and some of the men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and remained from captivity about Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who remained from the, from the captivity are in great calamity and reproach. Can that be said about most of our cities? Camden? Right? Great calamity and reproach. Can you see that? And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates are burned with fire. Now it happened when I heard these words, this is his response, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. He cares. Cares about what's going on. How many times do we hear something and we do not care? Something tragic and we just don't care. Nehemiah cares. Then I fast and I was fasting and praying to the God of heaven in those days. God is the one who gives us our missions, but he does not put something on our hearts and call to do us alone. He doesn't just... Set us on a path and then leave. He expects us to be continually connected with Him. And all through the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is constantly going to prayer. And the point is is that Nehemiah knows that if he's going to take ownership of the mission God has for his life, he needs to be in constant communion with the God who gave it to him. Nehemiah also has a very high view of God. Oh, yeah, okay, sorry. Nehemiah also has a very high view of God. And He holds everyone to that standard. So it's not just prayer, it's God's law. As we take ownership for our lives, and the mission God has for us, we must be continually connected with Him in prayer, but we also must be connected to Him in His Word. There's a lot of prayer warriors out there who don't get in the Word. And there's a lot of word warriors over there who don't get in prayer. We have to have both. God determines our mission in life. And in this mission, we must trust that God will guide us to accomplish it. Because they're not always easy. We shouldn't run to worldly philosophies, right? We should run to the Lord. When He is calling us to a mission, no matter what that is, we must run to Him. And the second thing we see in the prayer of Nehemiah is that if you want to take ownership of the mission God has for your life, if you want to live this life of valor that we're talking about, you must repent of your sins. We cannot be... We're all sinners, right? But we can't just say, I'm a sinner, but God will use me anyways. No, we need to work out our salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Nehemiah, still in chapter 1. I'm going to read the rest of this, this prayer that he has. He said, I beseech you, O Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and fearsome God, who keeps the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open and hear the prayer of your slave, which I am praying before you today, day and night. Have you ever had anything that you did that for? It's just constantly something is bugging you. Maybe it's, maybe it's the salvation of one of your kids. Maybe something has happened to a loved one. It's day and night. It's constant prayer. And that's where Nehemiah, on behalf of the city, that's where he's at right now. Continues, On behalf of the sons of Israel, your slaves, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel. So not only his own sins, he confesses the sins of the city. That's like us saying, Lord, we confess the sin. We're bringing the sins before you of the fact that they murder babies down the road. I know for us at the mission, we literally have an abortion clinic on the same street. We go and pray in front of it. And every time we go to a prayer meeting, which is three times a week at the mission, we pray that the Lord would destroy that place and that the people who come to salvation who go there we confess that saying, Lord, we don't know exactly how we're going to do it, but you have us here. We, Lord, we confess the fact that we have not shut that down yet. <laughs> and we're going to figure out how. But then he goes on. He says, I and my father's house have sinned. We have worked in utter destruction against you and have not kept the commandments nor statutes nor judgments which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scat- or excuse me, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been banished were at the ends of the sky, I love this, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen for my name to dwell. They are your slaves and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Lord, I beseech you. May your ear be attentive to the prayer of your slave and the prayer of your slaves who delight to fear in your name and to make your slave successful today and grant him compassion before this man. And then he says, for I was the cupbearer of the king. Nehemiah's prayer, he humbles himself, right? He humbles himself before the Lord and repents of his sins. That is a beautiful model of prayer for us. When we talk about our city, right? My city's Niagara Falls, your city's or whatever technical city that suburb whatever it is that's around here that's what we should be looking towards in our prayers right there use that as a model God is glorified in people who repent of their sins Nehemiah knows that not only not only Lord are there people over there who are sinning and Lord you need to fix them no he brings that up you need to fix me I confess of my sins. I and my father, we've sinned against you. Turn with me to Second Timothy two. I make sure I put a bookmark in here so I don't lose my spot. Second Timothy two. I know this may be hard for you to believe, but second Timothy comes after first Timothy, just in case anyone wasn't tracking. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 20. I'm going to verse 22. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, because of this, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master. Having been prepared for every good work, now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The first step in owning God's mission for your life is coming to Him and relying on Him, but we must confess and repent our sins if we want to use, be used greatly by God. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to be used greatly by God. I don't think that's a prideful statement to say. I want God to do great things through me. I want God to do great things through you. But we must come to Him in repentance of our sins. That has to be the step. The battle cry of my hero, John Knox, and I've kind of adopted it to uh, Niagara Falls, is, Lord, give me Niagara Falls or I die. That's, that was his motto. He got to Scotland and he said, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. He would rather die than not see Scotland given over to the Lord through his preaching. I'm sure he would say through whatever means. But if I continue to be ensnared by my lust and my sins, how can I expect God to use me? If I continue to live in this sin. And we all have a specific mission for God in His kingdom, but, but that mission, the, the outflow of that mission is our personal sanctification. You have your mission, which is to your family, to your job, to your ministry. And all these areas are important, But you and you must take ownership of that mission. But the ownership of the mission you need to take ownership first is your own personal sanctification, growing in your faith. You have to have that be the bedrock. That is the foundation to which your ownership of other ministries and missions come forth. In Philippians, Paul says this, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed not just in my presence only but now much more in my absence work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work with his good for his good pleasure john owen said it like this be killing sin or sin will be killing you it's that simple we have to be putting sin to death and our personal walks with the lord are the fuel for the ownership If I want to be a good husband, father, boss, employee, pastor, Sunday school teacher, whatever it is, it has to be fueled from a robust relationship with the Lord. You have to surrender because that's how it happens, right? This isn't just taking it by the horns. I'm going to do it all myself. I'm just going to keep my Bible in my back pocket. This is surrendering to the Lord. Going before Him. Letting Christ take control. And your leadership and ownership of your spiritual life, and if they are pure in your surrendering to the Lord, he will do great things through you. He will use you mightily. And so we see as as Nehemiah, he gets this mission from the Lord, we see that he first goes to prayer, right? He sees what God has, and he talks to God. And in that talking to God, he repents of his sin. He cleanses himself for the work comes before the Lord in humility. But now, now is the the time of truth, right? Because I can see what God has me to do. I can feel this is what the Lord's tugging at my heart. And then I can say, okay, Lord, I think this is what you have me to do. I pray, Lord, I'm unholy. I want to be used by you. Please help me to put my sin to death. I can't do it on my own. I need you, Lord. There's people starving in Africa and I feel like I'm going to be a missionary. And you're like, okay, And then you don't do anything, (laughs) right? And you just sit there because you don't actually take ownership of the mission that God has for you. And that's the next step. He actually does something about it. Nehemiah is a man of action. So thirdly, we see that Nehemiah takes ownership. It's time to grab the bull by the horns, right? That's what we would say. Nehemiah knows what the Lord has for him and now it's time to take that ownership. And, And lest you think this is the Hollywood moment where Nehemiah comes to some revelation And everything just starts falling into place. Nehemiah's first hurdle is to ask, like I said before, the king for permission, which could cost him his head. So his first hurdle is do or die. He knows I could be owning God's mission and my first step could be God being glorified with my head getting cut off. That's the first step of his mission. I got to get past this hurdle. But he knows the Lord has it for him. So he has faith that God will grant him favor. He always says, the good hand of our Lord was upon me. You see that constantly through the book of Nehemiah. The good hand of our, our Lord was upon me. He's still a slave. And so he takes a tactical approach. And it's really interesting when you read it. I don't have too much time to actually dive into exactly what... I'm going to do it anyways. Um, so he, he gets it. He, he, you, when you're in front of the king in that time, you're just supposed to look happy all the time, right? If you're a staffer for for the White House or if you work for your boss, right, and you're a reflection of how your boss treats you, if you're walking around like a sorry sap all the time, your boss doesn't look good, right? Does anyone here own a company? You own a company, sir? So if your employees don't look happy, right, or they just look you know, downtrodden all the time, people look at you and say, why, is it? why, yeah, right? Well, it's the same with the kingdom. It's the same with the king. So if you were around the king, you looked happy, right? So Nehemiah, for the first time, it seems, looks sad. And that doesn't really catch us so much because he just read, we just read what happened. Of course he's sad. But he says, in the king's presence, there's something special about that. You weren't supposed to be sad in the king's presence. He does it so that way the king will ask him what's wrong instead of him approaching the king. It's genius how he does that. Anyways, that's a side note. So, so um, first, that, so when we see this conversation, there's two parts. When Nehemiah approaches the king, or the king approaches Nehemiah, says, what does he need to do? The first thing Nehemiah does is he doesn't ask the king to solve the problem. He asks to solve the problem. So he doesn't say to the most powerful man in the world at the time, solve this problem for me. We've been friends for a while. Solve this problem for me. No. He takes ownership of it. He actually says, this is what I'm going to do, king. Send me. And I don't, has anyone ever been to a city council meeting before? Yeah. It's, it's like you're wasting your time. <laughs> right? I have to go to them for my job. And one, of, one time it was hilarious because we go there, this woman gets up, and if you've never been to a city council meeting, you pretty much get to go up and complain about all the problems of the city. That, that's what it is. And so this woman goes up, and she goes, I didn't know what the agenda items were today. And the, the, the councilmen were like, well, it's posted online. She's like, well, I don't have a computer. And he goes, okay, you can go to the public library that you're basically your tax dollars are paying for, right? And she goes, well, I can't get there. If you want me to know what's going on, you have to pick me up from my house and then drive me to the public library so I can research that so I can come yell at you at this meeting later, right? I mean, that's what she's saying. Well, the councilmen, they have to be extremely professional, and they just have to sit there and kind of shake their heads and listen to it. And they said, ma'am, they're like, you know, we have this public library. It's not really our job to get you there. And then she just starts chanting that, you know, they were being prejudiced against her because she was a woman. And they're going to make women walk. And then the whole place erupts in chanting that the city council is wrong because they won't get this woman to the public library. And I'm sitting there, seemingly the only person who's like, what is going on? (laughs) Right? This is a little crazy. But no one wants to go there and take ownership of the problems themselves. They want to take that problem that they see and they want to point it in someone else's face and say, you solve it. And how many times do we do that too? How many times do I see a problem that I know I could do? Like, For instance, just walking by and I see trash, right? How many times do I say, man, someone should pick that up who works for the city? And I just continue on. It's a cup right cuz i couldn't i'm too good to bow down and pick it up myself pointing out the problem that's not what nehemiah does he points it out and he says here's the problem and this is how we're going to solve it this is what we're going to do when we own God's mission for our life we need to put ourselves in the position to do it not pass the buck to somebody else it's kind of like isaiah 6:8 then i heard the voice of the lord saying whom shall i send and who will go for us then i said here i am send me that needs to be our attitude. The second thing we see is that he has a plan. He doesn't just mention that we should, someone should do something about this. I'm the one who's going to do something about this. He has three or four steps planned out. Not only, and it's kind of amazing because we think that paperwork's a new thing. No, paperwork was even back then. Nehemiah knows the exact forms he's going to need to have this mission go forward. He knows the people he's going to need. He knows, He knows who he's going to need to talk to, and he knows the paperwork he has to fill out. He has that all pre-planned before he goes to the king. When you take responsibility, you take ownership for something, you need to know how to solve that problem. You can't just 80-second airborne yourself into the middle and be like, well, I don't know what to do. You know, it's just not, not the way this works. Christian men, Christian men of valor, we can say, because we're here at this vignette of valor, don't complain. They take ownership. It's a whole different way of looking at it. Philippians 2 tells us to do all things without grumbling or complaining. complaining, Right? That's a command. The difference between bringing something up and complaining is that you have a possible solution for how to solve that problem. And it's kind of funny because we talk about taking ownership. We hear most people even in the civilian civilian world in the non-Christian world say take ownership, take responsibility, you know, the big heads like the Jocko Willings and the the Jordan Petersons and all these people, right? And you say, well, that kind of flies into the face of the sovereignty of God. Because isn't God in control of everything, so how can I take ownership of something if God's actually in control of the entire outcome? Kind of flies in the face of that a little bit. But we know that there's some divine mixture of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. We serve a sovereign God. Who's in control of all things. But we are also responsible to take ownership of what he gives us. And a way in a good way this is put out is in Proverbs twenty one, verse thirty to thirty one. It says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle. How's that done? A horse, a wild horse, doesn't just magically appear, say, I am ready for battle, right? No, you gotta train that horse. You gotta train that horse for battle. And in the old, in the cavalry in the old days, they used to shave the tails of the horses, and they used to put in the newer cavalrymen who were on that horse. They used to ride around on horses with no bushy on the tail, and they called them shavetails. tails. And the the thought process behind that was, by the time the hair grows back on the horse's tail, that soldier should be proficient on that horse. That horse should be made ready for battle by the time the hair grows back. You have to train that horse for battle. That's us, but. The victory belongs to the Lord. We may train the horse for battle. We may be the best soldiers in the world, but the victory belongs ultimately to the Lord. The heart of a man plans his ways, but Yahweh directs his step. 16.9. The Lord is in control, but we are still responsible about how we handle things in our lives. As men, we take responsibility. When God judges a fan, when when we go up there and we have to take an account before the Lord, we will all account for all of our sins, but we will also account for how we handle our families as men because God has put us responsible. And the last bit here, the last thing we see in taking ownership for God's mission for your life is that it may be your mission, but there are others involved. You cannot do this alone. one of the first things said about man in the Bible? It is not good for man to be alone. Right? I was talking about a wife, but that applies to all things. It is not good for us to be alone. Even in the shower, which is why I tried to beat Justin off. I was like, I'm taking a shower in here, and he tried to hop in. No, i was kidding. <laughs> So, kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I was told. So, um Nehemiah didn't rebuild this wall alone. It wasn't... Just up to him. He gets there, he observes, and then he rallies the people to rebuild the wall. This is what he says, Nehemiah 2, 17 to 18. Then I said to them, you see the calamity we are in, that Jerusalem lies in waste and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer be in reproach. And I love this because he says this throughout the entire book. And I told him how the hand of God had been good to me. And also the king's worship he has spoke to me. He, he talks about this all the time. This, I, I, I talk about the hand of God being upon me. The good hand of our Lord is with me. How many times do we say that to people? Like we're, Things are going good and we're like, man, I'm doing some good stuff. No, the good hand of the Lord is upon us, right? And Nehemiah sees that. And he says, so they said, let us arise and build. So they strengthen their hands for work. The people knew the situation was good, but what was the problem? It's not like the wall had just fallen down when Nehemiah got there. No one took ownership of the fact that their wall was down and the whole city's on stinking fire. No one stood up to take charge. No one said, I'm that guy who's going to get it done Till Nehemiah comes in and he's looking around. And you can imagine, we've all been... How many of us have seen... You know, does anyone here work for the city? Okay, good. So we all see people who work for the city and there's like 30 of them standing around. There's one guy with a shovel, right? <laughs> we all see that on the side of the road. And we're like, why isn't everyone else jumping in? Why are they finally getting to this? That's the attitude everyone had. Why isn't someone else doing it? Where's the Persian army where we're supposed to be under Persia? Why aren't they here to rebuild our wall for us? Nehemiah gets there and he puts the people to work. The people built their own wall. All of chapter 3 is about how everyone built their own peace. Peace of the wall everyone had their own assigned piece nehemiah was in charge of the entire mission right but everyone owned that one wall just like the we talked about before the platoon leader owns the platoon's mission but the team leader owns what happens with this team that's exactly what was going on here people were owning that piece of their wall what's right in front of them what's right in front of me i'm gonna own it and that's how nehemiah directs them we cannot do this alone God has given you a mission for your life, but you cannot do it alone. You need helpers. You need other people with you. And whether you're a subordinate role or you're in that ultimate leadership role, ultimate responsibility, you're still responsible for your peace. There's no blaming anyone else here. And it's interesting because in chapter 2, we we learn that Nehemiah actually brought some of the Persian army with him and then when they're attacked, guess what he does? He has the people defend their own home. It's like, where's the Persian army and all this? They came. Now, they may have gone home. I don't know. But they, he says, defend yourselves. And then after that, he develops a system where he's like, carry a sword with you while you work. Have a sword and a trowel. Because the people needed to own what was happening. And there's a book out there, I don't agree with everything in it, but it's called When Helping Hurts. It's a great book for ministry because you can do so much help for people that it actually hurts them by enabling them, right? We can do so much for someone. What's the old saying? Teach a man to, or Give a man a fish, feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, feed him for a lifetime. It's that principle. And Nehemiah is like, if we just come in and rebuild their wall and defend it, they're never going to keep it. So he, he has this system where they have to do it themselves. But Nehemiah knows what he's doing. He's leading an effort to rebuild the wall and he allows others to take ownership of their area of operation. And though he did this, he still takes full responsibility for excuse me, for what happens. When they are attacked, he comes up with a plan to defend it. When some of his subordinates are abusing people, he takes ownership of the problem and solves it. That was a real case where he could have just blamed the people under him and said it's their fault. Nope, he takes ownership. You never really catch Nehemiah blaming other people. And that should be the same with us. We should not blame other people. You are not a victim. You are not a victim. You never hear Joseph complain about his brothers selling him into slavery and say, I'm a victim of my circumstances. He says what? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. We need to take ownership of what's in front of us. Take ownership of your peace. And when we hear the term valor... We're thinking about that one move, right? That grabbing that machine gun and charging the hill. That guy who says, come follow me, Iron Mike, right? He says, come follow me. And the rest of the infantry flows up the hill of battle. But that may not be where God has you. God doesn't have us all charging a hill. So I'm going to pick on Justin. Justin, you don't run UPS, right? Right? You're a driver, right? And though, and you take ownership of your piece of the wall. That's that truck. That's the best truck UPS has, because Justin's in there, and Justin's indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That may not be true. Well, the best truck part, we know Justin's indwelt with the Holy Spirit, but, but, but yeah. <laughs> But that's what he should be striving towards. He takes ownership of that truck. He is responsible for what it does and fails to do. And when he comes home, he is responsible to guide his wife and kids. That's his wall. That's a piece of his wall. He strives to have the best truck and the best family possible. Why? Because when you're taking ownership and you're working towards that, you will present that before the Lord. That is your act of worship. John, your act of worship is your grandkids. It's that continual legacy in the grandkids, taking ownership of how they're raised. Yeah, you're not their father, and you want to overstep too much. You might get the mohawk poke, you know. (laughs) But that's the mentality we all have to embrace. God has given us that mission. Family mission never goes away. The work mission may change. You might get a new job. You might be sent to a new church, whatever it is. The family mission never changes. And others may be involved, but it's all towards God's glory. Because we're striving and we're pushing things to be the best as they can be and we're taking responsibility of them because we want to glorify God. At the end of the day, that's all that matters. And so to show you this in a way more succinct way, because Jesus said it and he's... Way better at saying things than myself or Nehemiah. Turn to me to Matthew twenty-five. Matthew chapter twenty-five, starting in verse fourteen is the parable of the talents Matthew 25 starting in verse 14 for it was just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and handed over his possessions to them and at first he gave five talents to another two and to another one each according to his own ability and then he went on a journey immediately the one who had received five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. And in the same manner, the one who had received two talents gained two more. But he who had received one talent went away, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. So what do we see here? We see that that the master, who's God, gives this sum of money to these three people. And we see what they do with it, Right? We see what they do with it. Two of them actually invest it. The other one hides it till the master returns. The other one says, the master's going to come back. Why am I going to worry about it? And this is just a side note. Don't we hear that from a lot of Christians today? The world's going to hell in a handbasket. Why would I do anything about it? wrong <laughs> right? Not the right attitude, which is what we're about to see. Picking up again in verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled, and settled accounts with them. That is a scary term. Settled accounts. We're thinking about God settling the accounts with us. And the one who had received five talents came up and brought five more. And, the master, and he's saying, Master, you handed me five talents over to me, and I have gained five more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also the one who had received two talents came up and said, Master, I, you handed me two talents over to me. And, and see, see, see I've, gained, I've gained two more talents. And the master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter the joy of your master. So the man comes around, Right? It's the day of reckoning. The slaves are brought up before their master and when the first two here, they've invested it in the kingdom. They've invested it in his glory. They've invested the mission God has for them in what God is doing and wants them to do. Well, what about the third? Verse 24. And the one also who had received one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scatter no seed. Then I was afraid and I went away and hid your talent in the ground and see, have what is yours. Think that was his actual mentality? Nope. Verse 26, but his master answered and said, you wicked and lazy slave. Wasn't that he was so scattered in fear, it was you were wicked and lazy. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scatter no seed. Therefore, you ought to have put the money in a bank and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten. For to anyone who has, more shall be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away and throw out This worthless slave into the utter darkness, into the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. For the one who did nothing with the talent, he was cast into utter darkness. And it's interesting because you think that they probably would have known each other, right? This is a parable, but you think there's three of us, we're probably heads, right? Probably would have known each other. You could have couldn't have seen what they were doing, (laughs) right? And said, I got to hop along on this. Maybe I'll unbury the one talent I have and start to invest it like the other guys are. No, nope. because the Lord gets to the root of the problem. You wicked and lazy, 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 lazy slave. He was lazy, he didn't want to do the work. And he couldn't even own up to the fact he was lazy. He said, I knew your character. I was afraid of you. And that's why I acted this way. God, it's your fault that I'm this way. You put me in this situation. You gave me these parents. Nope. God says what I gave you, use for the kingdom. The mission I gave you, you didn't own it. You're cast in utter darkness. God gave each according to his own ability. Men, God has given you to your own ability. And the amount that we are given is not the issue to God. It's what we do with it. Are you going to take ownership? Are you going to blame others? Are you going to be lazy? Are you going to be hardworking? You have to determine in yourself. Will you blame God for what he's given you? I don't have the talent so-and-so has. I don't have the nicest truck. I'm not. I'm not at the best nurses' station. I don't have the best students. Whatever it is, I don't have the best employees. God says, "I gave to you according to your own ability. Work it out." You may be looking at what God has called you and thinking this is too big. And maybe the Lord has rolled a storm in your life. Maybe it's a, a negative health diagnosis child who's dying maybe it's you lost your job maybe your wife left you or your wife's been cheating on you I don't know your situation but you cannot control these things this is God's sovereign hand in providence God knows it's happening it's not escaping him it's ordained but you can control how you react Sometimes you can't change your job. But you can control how you act in that job. You can control what you do. You can take it to God in prayer. You can, you can repent of your sins. Start there. You can take responsibility and you can move forward. And then you can surround yourself with people who are actually going to propel you to accomplish it. And guess where that should happen? The church. You surround yourself with this group of men here and we push each other forward. Or maybe the task in front of you is a great opportunity. It just seems too big. You're not ready, but it's right in front of you and you feel it's the Lord has for you. Or maybe you have that great opportunity, but it's spiraling out of control. Maybe your sin has placed you where you are currently dealing with the consequences, but no matter what it is or why you're there, it's time to take ownership of it. It's time to stop making excuses and take ownership of it. Pray to the Lord, repent of your sins, take responsibility, and get others around you who do the same. And I'll end with this. this is a little bit of my story. Um, last year, my wife uh, was an RN. I was a uh, minister of military ministry out in front of Fort Drum, uh, New York, and uh, that's louder. Uh, I got weird-shaped ears. It just dangles. But... Um, And she was an RN. She was kind of the breadwinner because I was in ministry and I'm working on seminary and I'm picking up some odd jobs, watching the kids. She's an RN. She's making decent money. And Kathy Hochul says everyone must get the COVID vaccine. And so my wife doesn't feel like she wants to do it. She's like, I want to have kids. They haven't ran the test, right? And what's going to do for kids? So she refuses. She loses her job. I got a job at a, um, a funeral home stacking dead bodies. I knew the guy who owned it, and he was like, I know you're comfortable around dead bodies. So <laughs> he's like, You can just stack them. You know? So I was like, Okay, cool. So I was helping him out with whatever he needed. And then we got, so now I'm, I'm 30, I'm 29, 30 years old, just got out of the army, and I'm already facing being a homeless veteran. I'm like, You gotta be kidding me, right? I thought I had everything under control. I got this magical GI bill that's supposed to solve everything. And, you know, here I am, about to be a homeless veteran. Great, right? Well, fortunately, like we talked about before, it's relationships, not resources. I had a family who took me back, took me in. We lived with them for six months until we got a house. And what I could have done, because we had to move on a negative 20-degree day. I don't know if any of you had a negative 20 degrees, but it's not fun. Negative 20 degrees. We're moving back to Niagara Falls, New York. And I was like, this is completely out of my hands. The government's doing this. You know, my wife didn't get the vaccine. Here I am in ministry, right? She's ruining my ministry. Could have blamed everybody else. But I prayed to the Lord for guidance. And I was like, I can't can't be bitter. I had people in my church telling us we were living in sin because we wouldn't get it. You're rebelling against the government, you're living in sin, right? And I don't know, I don't I don't want to make this about the vaccine or your stance or anything like that. But I could have got really bitter over that and I wanted to. But the Lord and I had a talk, which usually is him talking to me. I don't really get to say anything. <laughs> and he said, Hey, idiot. And I was telling you last night, everyone talks about the, the soft handing guide guiding hand of God. I get a two by four every time. So <laughs> God's like, hey, idiot, yeah, you can't control these circumstances. I'm working all things for your good. Stop being dumb and take ownership of where you're at. And I've now looked back and I see God's guiding hand on every piece. So you may be saying, how do I take ownership of this? I'm too inadequate. I can't lead. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And God says, hey, num-num. It's time to take ownership. It's time to do what I have for you. And so, this next section that I'm going to get into after our break, you need a pen and paper, and it's going to follow on of what we just talked about, okay? So, do you want me to dismiss him? Do you want to dismiss him? Did I go over? You are dismissed.